Our first lesson is taken from Psalm 30. Psalm 30, just these first two verses. So this is a marvelous psalm uh, that takes you from the depths to the heights. And in fact, we uh, heard words from it in the turning our morning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness that my soul may praise you and not be silent. That's how it ends. But it begins by saying, I will extol you, O Lord, for you've drawn me up. And if not, let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you've brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. It's too good. I'm going to keep on reading. Uh, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints. Give thanks to his holy name for his angers, but for a moment, and his favors for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong, but then you hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my soul may praise you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Our gospel lesson is from Luke chapter 10, verses 21 through 24. Luke 10, chapter, uh, verses 21 through 24. In that same hour, he, that is Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. And our text this morning is once again from 1 Peter. And we're going to be looking this morning at verses 6 down through verse 12. 6 through 12. But I want to begin reading again at verse 3, uh, which we looked at last week, but it sets the context for what follows. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the verses that we looked at last week, particularly the first three, then we linked it to the end of the chapter last week, but just think for a moment about those beautiful opening verses that should be a regular feature of Bible memory for children. A praise be to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has blessed us in him with all of this rich and incredible salvation that he describes here as a benefit of Christ's resurrection victory. He says, because of that, we have been given an inheritance, imperishable, un, what's the word? Imperishable, un, undefiled. I kept thinking unrefined, but it is refined. Undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for us who by God's power are being kept toward this day when this will be revealed to us. What is the imperishable, undefiled, and unfading treasure that he's keeping for us? It's crucial that we get this. So many American Christians think, if asked what is the gospel, what is salvation, they say, my sins are forgiven and I get to go to heaven when I die. Well, okay, I certainly prefer that to the alternative. But that's just a little sliver of the gospel. Heaven is not our final home, as too many of our hymns say that it is. Heaven is the throne of God where those who've gone before us await, as we await, the final glory 
when our bodies are raised up from the dead like that of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are not, in those beautiful words I so often quote that I believe are N.T. writes, we, our eternity is not as disembodied spirits in an insubstantial heaven. We will not be floating around on clouds playing harps. We will not become angels. We will be embodied persons in a recreated cosmos. That's the final scene of Revelation. The new heaven, the new earth, the new cosmos renewed. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. And God makes his home with us and wipes away our tears. Our great King Christ, who even now is the only one in glorified human flesh, will rule and reign. And we at last will see him as he is. Now that is our destiny. That's the not yet. And yet because we have received his spirit in Paul's words as down payment of that promise, and because he has joined us to one another in Christ, there is also the already. And we live in that tension as we study the scripture, we realize there is this tension between the already and the not yet, between that which we already experience and that which we have not yet and shall not yet until he makes all things new. And uh, I think if the danger sometime among our very charismatic brethren is of thinking of everything as already, the danger of the rest of us is too often we think of everything as not yet. And we're just muddling through here, not realizing what is ours. So in the verses we're looking at this morning, verses 6 through 12, he is describing, he's just giving us three illustrations of how this works its way out in our lives. What practical implication there should be in the way we live our lives and face everyday stuff based on the fact that we have this treasure kept for us and this great promise. So what's it to look like? So this comes almost in couplets, verses six and seven, and then verses eight and nine, and then the final three verses, 10, 11, and 12. And we're just going to look briefly at each of those. The first implication is that this genuine faith, which has been proven by being tested, is that we're sharing in the trials and difficulties of this life as members of the body of Christ. How does he say this? Look at verse six. In this, that is, in this salvation he is described, in this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. So the first thing he's telling us is, in the midst of the hard things in life, the stuff that we would never want to face, that is one of the places where we actually are called to learn to rejoice because this is proving out the reality of God's work within us. It is manifesting the reality of our faith. So a couple of things I, I want to say about that. First of all, always remember when you read 
the word joy in the Bible, that it's different from happiness. Happiness has at its root, hap, which stands for just what's happening. It's context specific. We are happy when we are deriving pleasure from what is going on around us. This is, I'm, I'm right now living the scene that I want. And this was actually the great vision of the Enlightenment. Too many Enlightenment histories don't show that this was the whole new idea of the Enlightenment. Of course, there was scientific method, lots of other things, but people began to believe in Europe and the United States that we had a right to pursue happiness. It made its way by Thomas Jefferson's words into our Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I, sorry, I can't ever say that or hear it without thinking of that old hysterically funny comedy routine of, of the British group Beyond the Fringe when they played the Founding Fathers and they were dressed like all of them in a photo. And Jefferson, remember the old S's were F's and it looked like F's and Jefferson is giving them the declaration and Franklin is saying, what's this pursuit of happiness? You know. <laughs> but the pursuit of happiness, that was at the heart of the understanding of, well, we're, we live in that. We're pursuing any person in their right mind, within right bounds, would like to be happy. Who would choose unhappiness but a masochist? But that's not what the Bible's talking about. Joy is something different. Joy is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It is something that we can experience and sometimes experience most deeply in the midst of our deepest disappointments and trials and grief because we remember that we are living in the light of what has been promised. If you will forgive me a personal illustration of this, I, all my life I've said, Lord, I can handle anything, any disease you want to send my way, any misfortune, I think I can handle it all. Just please don't touch my children. That's all I ask. Just leave my kids alone. And of course, many of you know that six months ago, the Lord decided to take us all into deeper waters than we'd ever been. And while I waited to hear whether or not they'd been able to get it, his heart started. I knew in a way I'd never known before. Not happiness, believe me, not for a moment. But a deep and settled peace, a sense that we have, whatever happens in that room, an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept, ready to be revealed, whatever happens here today, ultimately we're going to be okay because the sovereign king of all, the one who holds life and future in his hand, has us in his hand. And so while I was the saddest I think I've ever been, I can say there was a, a joy. And as the family came together, we experienced that together. And that's why, if I can just say it, people aren't helped by our victory stories. 
I hear these testimonies of people who say, you know, I just want you to know that God answers prayer. Uh, I wanted to get this job and I prayed and I got it. I was hoping to make this many sales and I prayed and God gave it to me. I was downtown, I had an appointment, I couldn't find a parking place and I asked the Lord for one and boy, somebody pulled out and there was a parking place. Somehow they think that people are just gonna say, I want what you've got. I mean, people are gagging in the corner because they know that other people got a raise and other people achieved their goals. And actually the guy behind you who was cursing God out also got a parking space. So I mean, that kind of nonsense, that's not, but you know what moves people deeply? When they see Christians go through the things that we all most dread. And they don't slap on a little false happy face, but in the midst of the admitted confessed grief and, and hurt and pain, they see them walking still in trust. I had, had a guy in previous church I served, I hope he's not listening to this because he'll know who he is. Um, but he always, I mean, it was just ad nauseum. If you just passed him in the hall at church or saw him out in town and said, hey, how are you? He'd always say, redeemed, how about you? Redeemed, how about you? And I know he meant it as a testimony, but of course, everybody just didn't even want to ask him how he was <laughs> because, you know, you just, just can you say fine, thanks, how are you? Um, <laughs> redeemed, redeemed. And then he was, he was actually a stockbroker. And then 2008 hit. And he walked into church and I passed him. I said, how you doing now? He said, this is just horrible. I mean, I don't know what I'm gonna do all this. I said, you're still redeemed, aren't you? <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, this is, so, you know, nobody cares how you're doing when, when your stock is up, but they're watching you and me in the places where they know we're going through what all of us most dread and don't wanna go through. And he says, it is there that the tested genuineness of your faith is being revealed for God's glory and honor and praise. And one day you'll get that too. If we live for praise now, we get it now. If we're living for praise then, the only hour when it matters, this is stored up. So that's the first. I, every one of us has hard places in, in our life. Sometimes when something even harder happens, that thing suddenly, suddenly seems to fade. But we've all got the most hurting place in our lives. And as Kathy Keller used to say, I'm sure she heard it from someone else, but she used to always say, you know, you're only as happy as your least happy child, which made me wonder how God could ever be happy. I mean, <laughs> because he sees the end, uh, no, no, no emails, please. Um, but we've all got hurts. And I would just invite you, if you are in Christ, to realize that the various trials that we are going through, Christ is going through it with you, because as we'll see in a moment, you are joined to him. You are his, you are part of him. He has made you his. He's walking through that with you. He is, if I could use that trite, and it sounds, I feel like Oprah saying it, but he feels your pain. That's why he wept at Lazarus' tomb. He saw the agony of death and what it brings. 
Second thing is that we rejoice in this salvation. It flows that if we are learning in the midst of the hardest places to say, Lord, I'd give anything to be out of this, but while I'm in it, would you use this to make me more like Jesus? Would you use this to to let your light shine through me to those who are watching and wanting to see if all those things that I said I believe, I don't believe, and, and I mean, that's been for me the challenge of the last six months with you. I'm every day saying, okay, you've been preaching for 45 years to other people going through this. Do you believe it or not? And that's where the tested genuineness, it's good for us because you find out, wow, I guess I do believe that. I hate it. I wish I could have, you know, it's a lesson I'd have rather not learned. But um, there it is. And I invite you in the hurting places of your life not just to see it as Christians as something that I've got to endure because someday I get to go to heaven. No, nothing is wasted as you give it to the Lord and say, take this thing I most dreaded. You have me here now. Don't let this be wasted on me or on those around me who are watching me. Use this to make me more like Jesus and to speak through, through my life. And it leads us to a celebration of our salvation. But we haven't seen Jesus. Peter, who was writing this, had seen him. He was one of his disciples. He'd been with him on the mountain of transfiguration. He'd argued with the other disciples over which of them was going to be greatest. He'd promised Jesus that even if all the rest betrayed him, he wouldn't. And he denied him three times. And like Judas, went out into the night and wept bitter tears. Unlike Judas. He was brought by grace to a place of repentance, and Jesus, resurrected, would ask him three times, do you love me? Yes. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Tend my lambs. Do you love me? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Tend my sheep. Peter had seen him. He'd known him. And within a few weeks after his total apostasy, he was standing up in Jerusalem preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit, and thousands responded. But he's now writing to people who never met Jesus. He says, you, you haven't seen him, and yet you love him. I'm up front, so I can't see your faces, but I'll bet those that were leading you in singing we're able to look around and see many faces here reflecting the deep love that you have for Jesus, reflecting back the love with which he's loved you. How in the world can, I mean, any, anybody with a brain can understand why people who aren't believers think we're all a bunch of nuts. I mean, we're standing here, you know, singing love songs to someone who in their estimation, died 2,000 years ago. I mean, what's this about? You never even met the guy. Why are you? How do we, how do we fall in love with him? Listen to these verses. Beginning with verse 8. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Why? 
obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, don't get me in trouble with Presbytery. Hear this in context. But when people want to argue with me about biblical inerrancy and all those things, I always say, do you know what? Let's just step way back. That, that's for later. We can talk about that later. But I have two fixed points. One is creation. There's no way that I can fathom this all just having happened by chance. There hasn't been, on the longest estimations, there hasn't been enough time. There's too much complexity. And as I'll argue in a minute, the, the reality back during the Enlightenment, Newton and Bacon and what followed said, you know, they disenchanted the world. It's just a mechanism. These are objects that can be manipulated. That was Francis Bacon's hope. We understand the world in order to, to use it. And it was discrete items, things, science, physics. It was like billiard balls. You fire it and you can get the angle. You can track how it's going to go. And the better our, our methods of computation become, the more we'll understand right down to where we see the most. But what's happened in the 20th and 21st century? Just the opposite. Suddenly, your greatest physicists seem to be speaking of a, an enchanted world, of a world where you, you go to a point where it's energy, and energy is matter. And, and it's, it's a field of which we are all apart, joined to each other and to everything. And it seems to be a sentient universe where these subatomic things are, are able, it seems, to move the way that fish in a great school move or we see a huge flock of birds move and we say, how did they do that? It seems sentient the further down you go and the further out you go and you realize that there aren't discrete objects that there are areas where energy is more compacted that we call objects and where it's more diffuse that we call the space between us. But we are connected. And what one does in one place affects what happens in places that they have never been. And if you are interested at all in that and want to read from people unlike me who actually know what they're talking about, uh, C.S. Lewis is great friend and fellow inkling Owen Barfield frequently wrote on this, and more recently, the most elegant and beautiful writer today on this is Virginia Stem Owens in uh, her book, And the Trees of the Field Clap Their Hands. Now, why do I say this? Because at the heart of human history stands the incarnation that God, the one who made this, joined himself to us took our flesh, took the stuff of our lives and didn't throw it away when he had redeemed us, but took it, the only one, the only resurrected one, the one in glorified flesh bearing the marks of our redemption. What's my other fixed point? The resurrection, the new creation, the new beginning. Because there is no way that I can believe that this large group of people went to painful, shameful, horrible deaths when all they had to do was to say, okay, I was lying. They had been with him and everything changed. 
And because of that, his spirit has come down to us in power through his church, through our connection to him and to one another. And so I, I love something uh, J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, he said he was, I think it was at Oxford, and he was walking with another friend, another Oxford uh, man, and the guy was talking about, he said, you know, boy, since I've become a Christian, it's harder for me to be taken seriously by some of my colleagues, but it's okay because I have known the living God. May I just ask you this morning, can you say that? Not do you know the four spiritual laws or do you know a bunch of verses or are there doctrines that you've said, okay, yeah, I got sent to that. Do you know the living God? That's what Christ came to bring us. And how does he supremely do it? How does his spirit do it? The final point is, do you realize the wonder that we have being this side of Christ and his resurrection? You know, it's easy sometimes if you're studying the Bible and you read about Abraham and it talks about Abraham talking with God to think, you know, it would be so much easier for me to believe if I could just sit down and have a little conversation like Abraham seemed to have or Moses at the, at the burning bush or the various prophets, Isaiah there in Isaiah 6 when he's worshiping and suddenly he sees the Lord high and lifted up and his train fills the temple. We think, if I could just have that, it would be okay. Now listen, listen to what he said. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Moses, Isaiah, Ezekiel, all these great Old Testament figures who prophesied, David, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of, the, of Christ, that's the Spirit of the Messiah, in them, was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, as these people were given things to prophesy, they were asking in whatever way they'd received it, God, open my eyes to what this is going to look like. What's this going to be? Who is this Messiah that is coming? And what will it be the day of his glory? What will it be like? Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And we think, well, at least the angels have a leg up, don't they? And he ends by saying, things into which angels long to look. Now, either this is just total fabrication coming to us from the ancient times, or it's true. And if it is true, it means that what you and I have been given in the New Testament writings enables us to understand in a way that none of the Old Testament figures could possibly understand the story of the meaning of life, what it's about. And remember that the first people who received this didn't have Bibles the, until the 1500s when Gutenberg invented the printing press. You had to be a very wealthy person 
to have someone hand copy even a part of the Bible for you. And you couldn't walk around with scrolls in your pocket. You know, now we've got our cell phone. You just pull it out, open up any pet. How many of us really believe that? And if we do, how many of us are seeking to live in that story so that we can understand the stories of our lives? The great denial of postmodernity is that there is a meta-narrative, a big story that defines the meaning of life. There's just your story, there's mine. It's a meaningless universe. We do our best, we make it up as we go along. Sort of it's uh, uh, existentialism on steroids. It's just make it up as you go along and do your best because it doesn't mean anything, but we need meaning to make life sweeter, to be happy. This is the meta-narrative. Whether you reject it or accept it, this is the great meta-narrative that alone makes sense of our stories. Leslie Newbegin, when he was serving in India, uh, in order to understand his context, was studying the Vedas and the Upanishads with one of the great Hindu scholars. And the fellow said to him at one point, tell me something about you Christians. Why are you always trying to present this as religion? And Newbigin said, what do you mean? And he said, don't you all realize that you have the only ultimate philosophy of history that gives us the story from the beginning to end of what everything means, makes sense of it all? You and I have that. And will we waste our lives doing perhaps good, important things, but things that have no ultimate significance because we have not lived with that hope of an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven, ready to be revealed, and therefore are living in the hardest of times through the trials that come to every one of us. And rejoicing in our salvation in the midst of it and realizing what a treasure we have been given. Would you take a moment and respond to whatever God's spirit may be wanting to say to you this morning?